This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. So he's going to talk uh, for uh, a while about that, and then, um, against my better judgment, he convinced me to come up and we'll have a conversation. He explained it like, it's just like going out to a bar and having a conversation, but without any drinks. Uh, and so we'll see how that goes for 15 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to, to uh, your questions for him. But for those who don't know Jess, let me just say a little bit about him. I should say that I first met Jess probably close to 20 years ago when he and I and Scott McQuilkin, who's here, uh, were involved in a movie made in Spokane called The Basket, and uh, Jess uh, actually is in The Basket as a player. I was the consultant for how to play basketball in 1918, which, yes, I'm, I'm almost that old. Uh, but in any event, uh, Jess was in it, and Scott was in it. So that was a fun, fun event to be a part of. And then over the years, we've just had a number of um, opportunities to, to uh, do some things together, and so it's really a, a great joy to have him here. Um, uh, let me just read just a little bit of, about him, which does really, I think, uh, uh, injustice to really his contribution to the literary world. Uh, most recently, uh, he was the number one New York Times bestseller with Beautiful Ruins. Uh, it's among eight books that he has authored in the story collection of We Live in Water. He was a finalist for the 2006 National Book Award for The Zero and won the 2005 Edgar Allan Poe Award for Citizen Vance. His short stories have won a Pushcart Prize and been honored three times in Best American Short Stories. He has been a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and the Penn USA Literary Prize in both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, twice won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award and has been long listed for the Story Prize and the Frank O'Connor International Story Prize. His books have been published in 32 languages and his short fiction has appeared in Harper's, Esquire, Best American Non-Required Reading, uh, Best of McSweeney's, Tin House, and many others. Uh, Jess, as you know, lives in Spokane. He's a proud graduate of uh, Eastern Washington University, one of the great supporters of the, of the Eags. He's a passionate basketball uh, lover, among many things. But again, just uh, a wonderful person. We are uh, privileged to have a chance to be with him tonight. So please join me in welcoming Jess Walters. Much, Dale. Can you, everyone hear me? They um, uh, gave me one of these uh, motivational speaker things. So um, either, I either feel like that or like I'm working at Taco Bell um, wearing this headset. But um, thank you so much, Dale. It's always great to be here at Weirworth. I was the visiting writer a few years ago, and I do that at universities uh, across the country. And Usually they fly you in and put you in a dorm. It was so strange being a visiting writer in my own town because um, I would just drive there every day and uh, uh, go to the same place where I usually lost in basketball games. Uh, but what a, what a great campus, what great faculty and environment you have here. Um, and I have uh, such fondness for this place and for the people, for Dale and for Scott, who we were in a movie together. Um, they were looking for basketball players, and uh, the producers knew that I played, so they said, can you gather up some basketball players? And I said, sure, and they said, 
they sort of were watching everyone play, and Scott actually is an incredible actor in this movie. You should uh, check it out just to see his acting. He should have won Best Amateur Actor. Um, but I only got in the movie because um, they needed someone who could grow a mustache in a week. And so I still think if there were a uh, Oscar category for Best Handlebar Mustache, I might win. Um, uh, so I'm going to just talk a little bit about uh, about the Ruby Ridge book. Um, it's hard for me to believe it's been 25 years. It was the first book that I ever wrote. Uh, I covered it as a newspaper reporter. Uh, and a little bit of honesty about what it's like to be, uh, uh, to have your first book published. I had it always been my dream. I had two dreams growing up. One was to play in the NBA, uh, and the other was to be an author. And um, how did, I didn't really realize until I was about 17 or 18 uh, how that they weren't equally far away. I thought that they were both almost impossible. Um, so I was so pleased to get my first book published. And uh, it ended up doing really well. It was made into a mini-series, um, sold well, was finalist for some prizes. Um, but uh, after the mini-series came out, every once in a while they'll print too many, so they do a thing called remaindering a book. And so um, they remaindered some copies of the book, which was called Every Knee Shall Bow Then. And they remaindered the, the movie tie-in version with Randy Quaid, uh, cousin Eddie from the vacation movies. Uh, and so I, and I, I was so freaked out because I thought I might never publish another book again that I did the most insane thing. I bought 10 boxes of the movie tie-in of Every Knee Shall Bow. And we've now moved nine of those boxes to three different houses. I don't know why I thought I would need 300 copies of my own book, um, but I just was afraid it would fall off the planet and no one would ever believe me. So we use them for coasters around our house. So um, for those of you who want to read this version, it doesn't have an index, uh, but it's otherwise pretty complete, um, except for the picture of Randy Quaid on the cover. And there's a free box of books out there. So, uh, and I'll even sign them. Uh, so you're helping us. I now have eight boxes of, uh, of books. So uh, if you want one, please take one afterward. This is the updated version, um, which has an index uh, and, and has the title Ruby Ridge, which was less confusing. So Ruby Ridge, uh, I'm going to start just by telling you a little bit about it, and then I'm going to read um, a slightly expanded version of an essay that I wrote about uh, about the case and what I think it still means and how it still reverberates uh, throughout the country 25 years later. Uh, but I have to start by telling the story because this is a case in which all of the details matter. Uh, they matter because uh, it's a story of complexity and a story uh, about how conspiracy thinking and um, failing to see both sides uh, can lead to disaster, which is what happened here. Randy Weaver was, um, uh, grew up in Iowa, all-American background. He, he was a special forces uh, um, soldier in the army, married uh, his uh, high school sweetheart, Vicki Weaver, and they started raising their kids in Iowa. Um, they, Vicki Weaver uh, was raised in a specific um, uh, Latter-day Saints family that believed in, a, in uh, the apocalypse. And Randy Weaver was a sort of seeking Christian who got involved uh, with his wife Vicki in 
um, apocalyptic movements. They started reading books like uh, Hal Lindsey's uh, and believing that the end times were now and that they could read the newspaper and see bits of revelation sprinkled throughout. This led them into survivalism and into um, a kind of belief system in which they thought they were actively living uh, in the end times at the end of, the, at the end of um, what they believed was a biblical prophecy of the end of the world. From there, um, that there are these rabbit holes that uh, you could go down, especially in the early to the late 1970s to early 80s. Uh, and the Weavers ended up believing that they were being called to a mountaintop, and so they made their way west. They ended up in Idaho, where they bought a 20-acre tract of land um, up near Bonner's Ferry called Ruby Ridge. Uh, when, in North Idaho at that time was the Aryan Nations, a white supremacy group that thrived mostly in prisons, but also uh, attracting the sort of skinheads and Christian identity believers. Uh, Christian identity is a faction, is the religion of white supremacy that believes that whites are the chosen um, people and that Jews are the spawn of Satan. Um, the Weavers uh, came, came across a whole bunch of people who had those similar beliefs. Uh, and Randy Weaver w went to some meetings of the Aryan Nations. He didn't join, um, but there he, came, he met uh, a guy named Gus Magisano, whose real name was Kenneth Fadley and was a, a, an ATF informant, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. At the time, in the early to mid-'80s, um, the, there was this bump in white supremacy. It happens about every... 10 to 15 years in the United States, we're going through a period right now uh, in which there's, there's a sort of explosive growth of these groups, often because they're mainstreamed, they're normalized. Um, people start to believe, uh, it, that their beliefs start to bump up against other beliefs. In this case, they bumped up against survivalists and um, apocalyptic Christians who believed the end times were now. And, uh, and so much like the Weavers, there was a, there was a real growth. Um, there was a group called the Order uh, that rose up out of the Aryan nations and decided that they would bring about the armed overthrow of the American government uh, and a race war that would cleanse the country. The order um, to, to further this committed bank robberies, murdered a Jewish talk show host named Alan Berg, um, and committed this string of crimes. Um, the FBI and the, and the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency did not want to get caught without um, unawares of these groups. And so uh, they began to send informants into the, into the uh, Aryan nations to try to sniff out these um, uh, plans like this. Uh, one of the really interesting things in my research was realizing that the ATF and the FBI didn't work together. Even though they're both federal agencies, there's one tape that was made of three people planning some conspiratorial things. And two of the people in this meeting were especially hardcore neo-Nazis. And as they're talking, um, um, there were informants. Two of the three were informants. Uh, and they knew because their wires were causing, wreaking havoc on the other guy's wire. And the two guys planning most of the things turned out to be informants. So uh, this, was the, this was the sort of environment that Randy Weaver found himself walking into. Uh, Kenneth Fadley, the ATF informant, talked to Weaver about supplying guns for LA gangs to start another race war. And Randy Weaver agreed to saw the barrels off two shotguns and 
to provide them uh, to Kenneth Fadley to sell. Uh, later, a jury would rule that this was entrapment, that Randy Weaver was not running a sawed-off shotgun factory. He only did it um, at the behest of this, uh, of this agent. Uh, the ATF at the time um, didn't even really want to arrest Randy Weaver. What they were looking to do was infiltrate the Aryan Nations and another group that had just sprouted up called the Montana Militia. So their idea was if they could get Randy Weaver to commit a crime, um, then they could flip him. They actually believed that he was not very... Um, uh, set and fundamental in his racist ways. He had black friends, he had run for sheriff of Bowery County, so even though he claimed to hate government, he was a sort of affable guy, and they thought they could turn him into an informant. Um, once he cut the barrels off the shotguns, they went to him and said, look, we have pictures of you committing this crime, um, you know, you're, you're, we want you to work for us. What they didn't realize about the Weavers, though, was that they weren't your run-of-the-mill neo-Nazis. They really did believe that the end time was coming, and they were living on a mountaintop um, with no electricity, um, separating themselves from the rest of the world in preparation for this. And so, when they, and they believed that this would all begin with a, with, um, betrayal by the government. So when government agents came, came to Randy Weaver and said this, he vowed to never be taken. He told the Aryan nations that, they, that someone had infiltrated them. Uh, and then he armed his children and went to his mountaintop and decided that he would not be taken. Um, the, uh, the, the Weaver was charged. He was arrested using a ruse. They printed up a broken down truck and he was he was charged in court. Um, there, a couple of mistakes were made. Uh, they sent him the wrong court date for his uh, he hearing, and then they told him that he could lose his land. Uh, but Weaver was released on his own recognizance. Now he went back up to the mountaintop, and he remained there for 14 months. He armed himself. He armed his children. They became more and more militant now because of this government betrayal. They shaved their heads. They wore swastikas. They marched around, uh, and his... 14-year-old son Samuel, his 16-year-old daughter Vicky, and a family friend named Kevin Harris who had moved in, um, all were carrying weapons at all times. Now it was a really dangerous situation. Um, but a, a, another interesting thing happened. The ATF now turned those charges over to the court. The court now said Randy Weaver was a fugitive, and it became the marshal service job to arrest him. Uh, another federal agency has now stepped in. Uh, in the meantime, the Weavers are writing letters saying that ty the tyrant's blood will flow if anyone tries to arrest them. And so um, Weaver and his family are up, up on this mountaintop, and, the, and it's the marshal service job to try to figure out how to arrest them. This all comes to a head August 21st of 1992. On that day, um, the Marshall's Special Operations Group is in the woods trying to figure out how to arrest um, this, this fugitive. There had been some um, newspaper stories in the Spokesman Review. In my newspaper, Geraldo Rivera had flown a plane over the cabin. Um, there was these stories of this white supremacist flaunt, um, taunting the U.S. government and saying, I won't be taken alive. Uh, and so now the pressure was even stronger. So the marshals sent in their special operations group to try to figure out how to arrest him. They were doing reconnaissance on August the morning of August 21st, um, trying to set up cameras and figure out how to arrest Weaver when um, 
the weaver's dog, Stryker, smelled them in the woods or heard some noise and took off out of the house. Now, the weavers say that they grabbed their rifles thinking the dog had found a deer and that they were going to go out and possibly shoot a deer. Uh, but um, whatever reason, they chased the dog into the woods down below the cabin um, where there was this Y that came together. There, the marshals... Um, had backed up as far as they could. The weaver's dog came upon them. And now this is the first place where the stories diverge. According to the marshals, um, they called out a surrender signal, said, stop, U.S. marshals. Uh, At that point, Kevin Harris opened fire and shot a decorated U.S. deputy marshal named William Deegan, killing him. Uh, according to the family, the first thing that happened was the dog came up to the weavers, uh, to the marshals. One of the marshals shot the dog to silence it, uh, and then um, uh, gunfire erupted between the two. Um, but either way, uh, at that moment, William Deegan was dead, uh, and then the marshals fired and shot, shot and killed Samuel Weaver, Randy Weaver's 14-year-old son, shot him in the elbow and the back as he turned to run away. So there were two people dead at this point, um, but... The Marshal Service either didn't know about Samuel Weaver's death or didn't tell anyone because they told the FBI they were under attack by white supremacists and that there was an ongoing firefight. Now, at this point, a third federal agency gets involved, the FBI. The FBI uh, in Quantico, um, uh, Virginia, scrambles its hostage rescue team, the, the most... Um, highly trained SWAT team in the, in the entire nation. And the hostage rescue team, as they're, as they're flown west, is told that there's an ongoing firefight in, uh, in this mountaintop in North Idaho that a white supremacist and his family have, um, have attacked uh, U.S. Marshals and killed them, and that um, they're flying into essentially an ongoing battle. And for the first time in American history, uh, what's called the rules of engagement are changed. Now, the rules of engagement cover every law enforcement agency in the United States, and they basically say they can't fire on you without calling out a a surrender warning, without saying you're surrounded, put up your hands, throw down your weapon. Uh, The FBI changed those rules and said any armed adult can, that deadly violence should be used against, can and should be used against any armed adult. Now, the problem was the weavers were always armed. And so uh, the FBI agents came into this um, situation having been been briefed with what would later be called illegal rules of engagement. The weavers dragged Sammy's body back to their cabin, put him in a shed, and they mourned all night. The next morning, Randy Weaver and his daughter, Sarah, and Kevin Harris went out to check on the body. Uh, They went to the shed. Randy Weaver lifted the latch of the shed, and a shot rang out pierced him in the, in the armpit. He and Kevin Harrison, uh, Sarah Weaver, ran back to the cabin, and another shot rang out. This one wounded Kevin Harris, uh, and Vicki Weaver had run to the door and was holding the door open, and the bullet went through the door, struck her in the face, and dropped her dead. Um, fam- the family says while she was holding their infant daughter, Elisheba. Now, at this point, um, an FBI agent, the FBI had surrounded the cabin, and an FBI agent named Lana Horiuchi had taken this shot. Later, he would claim that the rules of engagement had nothing to do with it, that he thought Randy Weaver was going to duck behind uh, the shed and fire at a helicopter. Um, But it was difficult to ever prove um, what could have happened. At this point, though, um, now two members of the Weaver family are dead, although no one in law enforcement knows that. They haven't come across Samuel Weaver's body, uh, and they don't yet 
yet know that Vicki Weaver's dead. The family thinks that they're being exterminated. They huddle on the floor, and for the next 11 horrible days, um, Sarah, 16-year-old Sarah Weaver um, has to care for her wounded father, Kevin Harris, who was wounded, has to take care of her baby sister, Elisheba, and her young sister, Rachel, um, while the FBI um, has, the, has the cabin surrounded. The FBI hostage negotiator trying to get them to come out, every morning they would shine bright lights on and say, Vicki, send the children out, Vicki, we're making pancakes. Later, the hostage negotiator said he had no idea Vicki Weaver had been killed. Um, but the, for the family, it was the most cruel torture to see her body lying there on the floor while the FBI called this out. Uh, the, the standoff lasted about 11 days, uh, and another kind of amazing thing, a horrible thing happened. At the, um, there was a, a roadblock uh, about a mile and a half from Ruby Ridge, and there um, protesters gathered, uh, hundreds of people um, angry at the way the Weavers had been treated, and it created this sort of almost violent situation, skinheads, um, constitutionalists, um, people who shared the Weavers' beliefs, and then some people who just were outraged by government overreach, uh, and, and there was this moment of severe conflict, uh, but luckily there was no more violence. Um, after the Weavers uh, surrendered, um, after 11 days, Randy and Kevin Harris were charged not only with the murder of William Deegan, but with conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, the kinds of charges um, that, used to, that they had used against the order. Um, in the longest jury trial in, uh, in Idaho, or longest jury deliberation in Idaho history, um, after a after a wild trial, um, Brent Weaver and Kevin Harris were acquitted of all charges except Randy Weaver's initial failure to appear. Uh, later, an investigation into the mistakes and the cover-ups. Um, no, no one, for instance, ever claimed credit for rewriting those rules of engagement. Um, no one in those three agencies that did such a bad job communicating what this case was really about was ever um, prosecuted. People lost their jobs, um, but the, there was a, the Weavers ended up suing the government and got a $3.1 million claim, a uh, million dollars for each of the girls and $100,000 for Randy Weaver. Um, the other reason this case had such resonance is it's a point on a timeline. Uh, a year after Ruby Ridge was the standoff at Waco in which, um, again, a situation blew up out of hand um, and, and people were killed um, because of an FBI raid. Um, after that, uh, Timothy McVeigh, uh, a, another white supremacist, bombed the Oklahoma City courthouse to, uh, in revenge, in vengeance for uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco. So there are these points on a line um, from 1992 to 1995, this tragic series of events uh, in which a couple of things happened. Um, you saw these, these violations of civil rights on the far right wing of the, of the political spectrum, the sorts of civil rights violations that had often occurred on the far left, uh, and it led to hundreds of um, innocent deaths, and, uh, and so it, it was really a sort of tragic uh, moment. Uh, the essay I want to read is about, my, uh, is about something a little bit different and another echo, I think, of what happened at Ruby Ridge, which is uh, the way we process information. Since I wrote that book 25 years ago, uh, it's been fascinating to me uh, to watch the response. I 
did everything I could as a journalist to go right down the middle, to just present the facts as completely as I could. In fact, I did such a good job presenting the facts that for two years I couldn't find a publisher for my manuscript. Um, publishers said, there are no good guys. There's no one to root for. And as a journalist, I thought that was the greatest compliment I'd ever heard because often in real life there aren't good guys and the fact that we should be rooting for anyone as if life were a football game makes me a little bit insane. Uh, and so this is an essay I wrote about that and I'll read that and then Dale and I will talk a little bit and then I'll happily answer questions. And then remember, free books. 25 years ago this summer, I sat in a trailer in North Idaho trying to convince a white supremacist holding a gun that I was not an FBI agent. I, was exp I explained that I was a reporter from Spokane looking for insight into his old neighbor, Randy Weaver, the figure at the center of the shootout and 11-day standoff at Ruby Ridge. His eyes narrowed. He said I didn't look like a reporter. And how did I explain the Fed car I was driving? It was a company car, a Ford Tempo checked out from the spokesman review garage, but he didn't believe me. And what about my Fed haircut, he said. I tried to explain my dad cut my hair then, and he only had two styles, crew cut and flat top. But nothing I said could convince him. I find myself thinking more and more about that frustrating, surreal conversation and about Ruby Ridge as I watch our country riven by these deep divisions not just political differences, but a chasm of seemingly alternate facts, of entirely different realities. Communication without trust is difficult, but without agreement over basic reality, it's impossible. In 1995, three years after the standoff, I published a book about Ruby Ridge. I mined tens of thousands of pages of transcripts, wiretaps, reports, and letters. My researchers and I interviewed a couple hundred people from every part of the case, from Weaver's family in Iowa to the jurors in the trial, from Sarah Weaver to the FBI agents and U.S. Marshals. I endeavored to tell as complete and objective a version of the story as I could. And ever since, I've watched people cherry-pick only the details from the case that fit their own ideas about what Ruby Ridge means. Either A, how the insidious sickness of white supremacy, racism, paranoia, and guns led to the death of a decorated federal agent, a mother and her 14-year-old son, cost millions of dollars and destroyed careers, or B, how government overreach and deadly law enforcement arrogance and mistakes led to the trampling of individual rights, the destruction of a family, and the erosion of faith in our institutions. Of course, the correct answer, in Ruby Ridge at least, is C, all of the above. F. Scott Fitzgerald wants to find a first-rate intelligence as the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. But something about Ruby Ridge turns many otherwise intelligent people into second-rate thinkers. I suppose it's the mix of so many complex and diverse and divisive themes, so many discordant ideas hardwired into America's history, race, religion, guns, law enforcement, and the Western and the myth of the West. That inability to see both sides clouded the case from the very beginning in my attempts to sell the story. 
For more than a year, every New York publisher rejected my book proposal, usually objecting that the story had no good guys and that I needed to pick a side. 25 years later, we have certainly picked our sides. We are a country sick with second-rate thinking, so rutted in partisan politics that it takes just five minutes flipping news channels to feel rather hopeless. Our own opinions echo back at us in social media feeds, memes, and tweets in short attention span bursts that reinforce and entrench our worldviews. We root for the news now, like fans of opposing sports teams. We hold our breaths and wait for the mass killer's political views to come out so we can say, see? And because we can't even agree on a basic set of facts, we waste time arguing false equivalencies, like whether science and the rejection of science deserve equal hearing, or whether neo-Nazis and people angrily protesting them are equally to blame for a deadly riot, as if blame will settle something. Sometimes it seems like the whole country has become like the two sides at the roadblock at Ruby Ridge, seduced by paranoia, by the reduction of complex ideas into protest signs and bumper stickers, or now into 140 characters, into two intractable sides. I sometimes wish there were a bipartisan commission to agree on basic facts. We could start with gravity, or that the earth revolves around the sun or perhaps some other self-evident truths, perhaps that men are all created equal, or that they are endowed with unalienable rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These founding ideals were the themes of Ruby Ridge, too. Randy Weaver's self-fulfilling apocalyptic belief in white supremacy leading to a tragic confrontation with law enforcement agents whose brutal missteps and cover-ups violated the Weaver's life and liberty. Still, the Ruby Ridge question I get more than any other is a binary one. Yeah, but who was really to blame? As if in my attempts to give an objective telling of the story, I have somehow held back. And when I give the only reasonable answer, both sides were to blame. Invariably, whoever asked the question leaves disappointed. This is the world we live in now. Every Thanksgiving dinner, high school reunion, Facebook post, conversation with a neighbor offers the possibility of encountering someone fully entrenched on the other side. Our conversations are like Beckett plays, two characters miscommunicating so profoundly it might be funny if it weren't so sad. The assumption has been for some time that people are taking, our, taking in news and information through a kind of belief filter, that we are processing things based on what we already believe. This is partly true, but it's even more serious than that. A recent Yale study on, and I love this, bullshit receptivity showed that the belief filter is only part of the problem. People actively shut down the flow of information before their beliefs can be threatened. This is happening on both sides of the political debate, but like many false equivalencies, that doesn't mean it's happening equally. The Yale study found that those voters who supported Donald Trump were twice as likely to reject the idea of facts that would change their worldview. My favorite quote from the study is this, the evidence indicates that people fall for fake news not because they think in a motivated or identity-protected way, but because they fail to think. They choose to not think. So forget politics. This is a philosophical crisis we are having. What is the nature of truth? 
At the same time, we are cutting higher education. We're telling kids not to go into philosophy and the humanities, and these things are losing funding. At a time when we are so distracted by millions of entertainment and social media choices, when our attention spans have been shrunk to a few seconds, when our politics are ruthlessly divided and our understanding of the complexities of history and society are at their lowest. It all reminds me of sitting in that Idaho trailer 25 years ago, a scared young reporter trying to get information from an avowed white supremacist, or, in his view, a sneaky undercover FBI agent trying to trick a God-fearing patriot into saying something incriminating. Every explanation I offered that day only convinced him more of what he already believed. He laughed at my fed car. He scoffed at my haircut. Of course, a federal agent posing as a reporter would have newspaper business cards and a fake ID and a cover story like mine. In fact, he said with great pride, my whole story had proven his point. When the interview was finished, I thanked him for his time and told him I would send him a copy of my story when it was finished. Don't bother, he said. I already know what it's going to say. So, Dale, you want to come up and... Better get the Whitworth chair. Is that an endowed chair? I'm sure it is. Uh, well, first, let me again thank you for, for all of that. Just a, uh, a powerful telling of the story. Thanks. Uh, and uh, I, I know you published that in The Spokesman, your last essay, and uh, hearing it again and after reading it, that's, it was... Again, uh, a powerful testimony to your own reflection and thoughtfulness about this this whole thing. So it's hard to know what what's a good good question. Uh, but let me ask you about about your own voice because, um, as you described, 25 years ago, you're you were trying to submerge at some level your voice, let as much as possible facts speak for themselves. Uh, do the best you can at being good at being objective, and now 25 years later, you obviously have developed uh, a sense of what this means to you personally and what it means to perhaps the country as a whole. And and maybe you could just talk a little bit more about that sure, evolution yeah. from reporter to now poignant prophetic voice, you know, to. Uh, to ourselves. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the story begins as a journalist, and I was trained as a journalist uh, and have a love for journalism that is, that I, that I, and I'm a little bit heartbroken now at the state that journalism is in, both the way it's under attack, um, the way people have lost their sense of belief in it, but also I don't, I think journalism, I think television news especially, but also print journalism has some culpability in this. Um, we didn't used to, you know, now 
there'll be an hour of Fox News with Shepard Smith, which is pretty straightforward news. And then on the same channel will be someone else presenting news that is entirely opinion. The same thing happens on MSNBC. Uh, we tend to forgive the one we agree in more. Uh, agree on more, but that blurring of, of opinion and, and reporting. I had opinions then too, obviously. Um, as a reporter, I believed in my professional ability to objectively um, tell a story. And objectivity is not the lack of opinions, it's not the lack of discernment. It's in fact um, nothing but striving, nothing but striving to to tell the truth as factually and completely as you can. And that's really how I approached the story, was to not come in with any sorts of judgments. It was an interesting story because we began covering it uh, as a newspaper the way we covered the order in those other cases. And we only had the FBI's version of the story and the Marshal's Service version of the story that there was a radical right-wing white supremacist family that had attacked the government. It wasn't until the case began to, um, began to open up uh, that I got the human side. Um, I was a 27-year-old young scared reporter um, up covering this thing and um, the day the standoff ended, uh, I managed to be the only reporters to secure an interview with Sarah Weaver, the 16-year-old daughter who'd held the, the cabin together. And I met her at a little, her, her aunt and uncle had taken her to this little hotel in Sandpoint, Idaho, and I came in and there was this girl who was who thought that her family was being exterminated, who had been raised with the most horrific belief system. Uh, and it was an introduction into the other side of this case, not what, not the, the, what law enforcement tells you, but the sort of human side, and seeing what this family had been through. Um, over the next year and a half reporting the story, I, I came to a kind of realization that what had begun as a law enforcement you know, shootout story had become uh, a civil rights case. This was the Weavers' civil rights, um, you know, being violated by over-aggressive uh, law enforcement, the same as the American Indian Movement at Wounded Knee, the same as the Black Panther Party. It was a group on the fringe of, of, um, of society complaining about police overreach and brutality. Um, the people who protested Ruby Ridge would be stunned to know how much they have in common with Black Lives Matters. They both don't want the police to, to violate their rights um, based on, on them being in a group. Thanks. Uh, you talk about Ruby Ridge being on a, a, a point in time, and you mentioned briefly Waco and, and Oklahoma City, and. I don't know if you remember uh, yourself and how you were observing those events through the lens of, of Ruby Ridge, but can you talk more about how 25 years later you do see those three events connected or disconnected, and do we, in your opinion, uh, understand the significance of those, those three, or what should we take away from that? Yeah, the, the, the belief system that the Weavers fell for, this Christian identity, um, religion. And I should say real quickly about Sarah Weaver. She has sort of disavowed her early um, upbringing and has forgiven the FBI agents and is really a sort of striking figure. She lives in Montana um, for the idea of, you know, of forgiveness. She'll never, 
she'll never, I think, forgive the government for some of the things they did, but she has spoken about the need for that. Um, when I look back at those, at those moments, it was a really, a really interesting thing happened that I think has a parallel today. Uh, after Ruby Ridge and Waco, there was a sort of mainstreaming and normalization of some radical right-wing beliefs, especially the hatred of government. Um, these groups believe that government is terrible, government is awful, um, and that government's coming to take your rights and take your guns. And, uh, and there was this sort of crossover of these things. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center counts the number of radical right-wing and racist groups that pop up. And after Ruby Ridge and Waco, um, there was a, they increased by four times. There were, I believe, 2,000 of these groups that sprouted up militias um, and all these kinds of things. And, and we're in another period like that now where emboldened by the, by the, the I think, um, uncivilized nature of, of, uh, of political discourse, these groups are on the rise again. After Oklahoma City, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma City Courthouse in response to Waco and Ruby Ridge. Um, and most Americans drew the line there. The num within two years, the number of radical right-wing groups had fallen again to that original number, uh, had cut by four times again. Um, because in the end, people, I think Americans do draw the line um, at, this, at this sort of belief, but, you know, but I think we're at another period where, um, where what's, um, you know, what's politically palatable has crossed over into a kind of dangerous area, and it reminds me very much of of this aftermath, in which it was hard to argue that the government uh, hadn't been out of control in a case like Ruby Ridge, and so giving fuel to the fire of these groups helps legitimize them, and they're being legitimized now, obviously, in different ways. Thanks. Um, you talked in in the essay. You spoke about. Uh, good thinking and bad thinking or second-rate thinking and and uh, I think those of us who teach at a, a liberal arts institution obviously um, celebrate your your um, the worth that you place in the humanities and philosophy and history and theology uh, but I think part of your answer about Vicky in particular makes me think of, of empathy and and uh, it does strike me that potentially they're they're not necessarily um, mutually exclusive of one another, but that that uh, good thinking is a different exercise than developing empathy, particular particularly for individuals that do not share the same worldview or belief system that you did. Could you talk a little bit about about those two and what you mean? Maybe just a little bit more about good thinking and then whether or not the idea of empathy is also something that you think needs to be cultivated in some form or another? Boy, that's a great question and a great distinction too because um, I, I, do think we, I do think our fractured attention span, our um, you know, choosing which news you want, the way our uh, social media opinions echo back to us, I do think these are really dangerous things that don't allow us to see the complexity of the world, that don't allow us to understand the historical import of certain things and, and how these things bubble up. Um, empathy is a different question. You know, it's, it's a very timely one. The New York Times just did a story um, a couple days ago about uh, 
they called it the white supremacist next door. And this story has, has caused huge outrage from people and, and defensively, you know, understandably so, uh, because it showed these, this white supremacist and his wife in Ohio and it said, look, they like Seinfeld and they have a tattoos and they're just like you and me. And it was a little bit the elitist um, sort of thinking of who are these people? Go find some and tell us what they look like. Um, and, and, the, and so I do understand the outrage, but as, as a reporter whose belief was you weren't telling the whole story without the human side, and as a novelist especially, um, when you read a novel, you are getting, a, you are mainlining empathy. You are reading about another character's life in a way that puts you in their world. It's one of the things I love about fiction writing. And so I think of them as the two pieces of thinking that we can't do without and that we are doing without, that the, the, the complexity, the piece um, that, that determines whether or not we really understand what we're talking about and that we don't reject facts that may not agree with our worldview, that we take it all in and that we sometimes choose C, both are to blame, or C, or D, blame doesn't matter, let's just fix it, or E, um, you know, there, there are other choices than to choose these two sides that we've fallen so deeply into. And, and then the other side is a, is a really honest discussion about the nature of truth and facts and science that I think we have to have. If I were the president, I would have like an AmeriCorps for philosophy students. I would really be churning out philosophers. Um, I'd give extra money for goatees. Um, I would, uh, for curly Greek hair, I would do whatever it took to get more people into philosophy because I feel like we have lost, We're, it's, it's a dis debate we really need to have. How are we gonna reestablish truth and authority uh, and, and a, you know, in a media that people have lost faith in and in institutions that people have lost faith in? Uh, right now, uh, if you're on the left political of the political spectrum, you have so little faith in government. Um, and right now, if you're on the far right, you have so little faith in media. Uh, and we don't need faith, we need some common set of facts that brings us back to a place where um, the first thing we, you know, we don't look to bumper stickers to see if the person is a rational human being. We, we assume that they are based on the fact that we've all come through a school system that's given us these, you know, this way to discern and think that hopefully is more, um, you know, more understanding and profound than we live in the place we are now. Thanks. Let me ask one more question, and we'll open it up for um, anyone from the audience. And then free books. <laughs> uh, what, if anything, does this incident, this tragic event, tell us about the Northwest uh, itself? Or does it just say something about northern Idaho? Or does it say, do you think about it as an American story, a Northwest story, all of the above? Um, um, it does say something about the Northwest, of course, and yet I don't think it says as much as we think. The, um, you know, I remember meeting people who would say, you know, African Americans who would say, I'm not going to Idaho. I've, one of my best friends moved to Spokane in 1993 from Denver, and, uh, and African American man who said, I landed in the middle of you know, this incredibly racist, tense situation after Ruby Ridge, and I think it was 92 when he moved here, and, and, and in a way, um, the Aryan Nations was right there in Idaho. I mean, there's no doubt that it was, and so 
but at any given time, there were far more skinheads walking the streets of Portland than all of North Idaho put together. There were far more skinheads in San Diego. Um, there were these pockets of skinheads. There was a group of skinheads in Las Vegas that was in a band um, that I um, got to know, and I interviewed them at one point, and, I, and they said, well, we used to be a folk band, and then Jimmy got racist, um, so now our songs are kind of like Joni Mitchell except racist, and I said, that couldn't be less like Joni Mitchell, so, um, but they were just kids, they were, and, and I used to have a test with skinheads, I would say, when did your father leave, and they would say, how did you know? Um, they were all young men who's, who had no, mostly, who had no mo male role models, and they fell for this stupid conspiratorial line of thinking that explained their own failure to them. You know why I can't go to college? Because it's rigged against the white man. And I would say, what history book do you read that tells you it's been rigged against the white man? Because, like, was slavery, I hated the way you poor whites were put into slavery or the way you were put on reservations. That was pretty horrible. Um, but, you know, the, it explains not historical failure, but their own failure to them. Uh, and so, the, you know, I think the, it, is, it, it was a kind of Northwest story because the West has always been the place where you run out of room. Uh, my grandfather arrived here on a freight train uh, because there was nowhere else for him to go. He got off and started doing itinerant farm work. Uh, and in the same way, people who were pushed out of the people like the weavers who were looking for a mountaintop, there are just more mountaintops. There are places to be isolated. Land is cheap. Um, Richard Butler came up from California because he could start a compound and land was cheap. Um, there's also the myth of the West, this, this idea that it was tamed by guns and iconoclastic um, you know, men who came in and, you know, and made the land their own. And, uh, and those myths can be dangerous. But to think for a second that racism has some root in the Northwest that it doesn't have elsewhere is just foolhardy. Uh, our brand is tied to this myth of the West and the iconoclastic nature of the West, but it doesn't differ um, from the racism of anywhere else. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of thinking that will keep coming up and will keep repeating itself uh, because it puts people down below people who feel like they're on the bottom and want someone down below them, need someone down below them. And that kind of thinking that puts people there because of race or religion or ethnicity or belief system will always be toxic and will always have followers. Thanks.